Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. We're also continuing our look at the Gospel according to St. Mark, and today we're going to go to chapter 6, verses 30 to 34. It's In a way, it's kind of an in-between segment of Mark's Gospel, in-between several different events. And I think that to put it into to context, maybe we should, we should look at where it is situated within Mark's Gospel. Um, first of all, um, we have Jesus sending out the twelve two by two. We've already looked at that. We've already reflected upon that. And uh, and that is where in the first in the first uh, two sentences or so of this gospel we we connect with that part of the gospel. It says the apostles rejoined Jesus and told him all they had done and taught. And then he said to them, "You must come away to some lonely place all by yourselves and rest for a while." For there were so many coming and going that the apostles had no time even to eat. So this is now a commentary. The mission that he sent them out on is now over. They've gone out, they've been preaching, they've been healing, um, and the crowds have been gathering around them to such a degree that they, they really probably are fairly exhausted, and it says they did not even have time to eat. And then the next thing that happens as they're gone on their mission, Mark then deals with the death of John the Baptist, which is not included actually in this Mark and series that we're doing. But it immediately precedes this gospel. So basically the story is the 12 go out, they, they take with them nothing for their journey. They take whatever is given to them. They receive whatever people are willing to give them, lodging and so forth. And and while they're gone, then the story of the death of the Baptist comes. And, uh, and that kind of gives a reason for Jesus to leave the territory because he is at the present time in the territory of, of belonging to Herod. And it's time for him to move on from there because now it has become very, very, uh, very difficult. And uh, so they withdraw. And in withdrawing then, he leaves behind him um, the danger that Herod pres- um, is that of Herod in, in the very present situation. Um, so then the, the next thing after then, there's a movement going on. The apostles come back and Jesus said, we'd better leave this place. And uh, so together, and he said, you're exhausted. Let's go away to a lonely place by, by ourselves for a while. And uh, obviously we can rest, recuperate, and, and pray. Um, but what happens then is that people see them leaving in the boat. They figure out where they're going and probably along the shore, walk along the shore until they can until they can get to the place, which is identified actually as Bethsaida uh, Julius in, in the territory of the Tetrarch Philip, which is, of course, the birthplace of Peter and Andrew. 
So there's all sorts of movement going on and all sorts of reasons going on. They're tired from the mission that Jesus sends them on. While they're gone, Herod shows his hostility in the execution of John the Baptist. When they return, they're exhausted. And Jesus said, in a way, it's not really safe right now for us to stay here. So they move then into the territory of the Tetrarch Philip and get away from from Herod. But... So they went off, it said, the gospel says, in a boat to a lonely place where they could be by themselves. But people saw them going, and many could guess where, and from every town they all hurried to the place on foot and reached it before the disciples arrived, before the apostles and Jesus arrived. So that the crowd then has been gathering, because there's, there's an underlying issue in all of this. And that is, they do perform miracles, and, the, and especially they do, they do heal the sick, and they do do exorcism, they cast out demons, all of that. Um, all of that they're, they're engaged in. And the people are almost in a frenzy of excitement about that. Um, they're teaching along the way, too. But here's one of, the, one of the strange mixtures that happens in the Gospels all the time, that while miracles accompany the work of the Messiah, too many people focus only on the miracles, and they do not focus on, on the message of the Messiah. They do not focus on the Word of God. They just want the results. They just want somehow or other um, to get something. And we, we know, for instance, that that happens all the time um, with Jesus. And that's why he oftentimes removes himself, why he oftentimes hides, why he also imposes the messianic secret in the Mark and Gospel on the, on, on the apostles. Um, don't tell people, don't tell people who I am, even if you, because what was happening is that the things that Jesus was doing were mess- the signs of the, of the coming of the Messiah. And so if they testified to the signs, those people who were in tune with the expectation of a Messiah, not all were, but those who were, would then automatically impose their own expectations upon Jesus. And we, we certainly have, have seen this before. Um, they, want, they want all sorts of different things. And, uh, and we know ourselves when we have great expectations about something that it's very easy to become disappointed um, because very oftentimes our expectations don't conform to the reality that we're dealing with. And we have this, you know, I don't know, we, we see this a lot. Honestly, in very personal ways, we see it in marriages, we see it between parents and children. Um, but we see it also in popular movements. Um, how many times have, uh, have people's enthusiasm identified someone only to find out that that's not who they really were? And usually ending in some kind of disappointment, either disappointment because things are more than they wanted them to be or disappointment because things are less than they wanted them to be. So that's a common thing. And, uh, and that's part of the reason. That's why, you know, we, we have to be careful, certainly, 
um, when we come to the time after Pentecost in the, in the Acts of the Apostles, things look a little bit differently because the Messiah has been identified now as the one who has risen from the dead. And so the person of Jesus identifies messianic expectations. But before the resurrection, the person of Jesus does not identify messianic expectations within the wider community because those expectations are so varied and so different that no matter who is involved, somebody's going to be disappointed, and certainly large numbers of people are going to be disappointed. As a matter of fact, probably some of the cause of Jesus' execution was disappointment. Um, Not just threatening um, the, uh, the power structure that was in place in first century Palestine, um, the, the Sanhedrin and the high priests and all of that, um, that was certainly a huge part of it. But part of it on the part of the populace was a certain kind of disappointment. How is it possible that uh, Jesus can fall into the hands of civil authorities if he were, in fact, the Messiah? So this is a great struggle, and we have that here. But the people saw them going, and many could, um, and many could guess where. Um, if you're leaving from this and your boat is headed in a certain direction, they know where the port is, and so off they go. Um, and it says, from every town they hurried to the place on foot and reached it before them. What's going to happen next uh, kind of tells you the size of the crowd, because what's going to happen the next is that Jesus has pity on them, because they are sheep like sheep without a shepherd. And so, but basically they need food and he feeds them with the five loaves and the two fishes. So what the crowd then, it says when the crowd followed him, they're coming from everywhere. We know identified in scripture, there were a few thousand people involved in all this. If that was a hyperbola, if that was exaggeration to emphasize a large crowd, then so be it. But we know it was a large number of people. And so... So as he stepped ashore, he saw a large crowd, and he took pity on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he set himself to teach them at some length. So what happens now is that Jesus is tired, and so are the, and so are the apostles. They have been through a kind of a serious setback because John the Baptist has now been executed in the territory of Herod Antipas. And they have, in prudence, then left that territory, moved to the territory of the Tetrarch Philip, and uh, and are trying to recoup from all that's happened. But that's not what's going to happen. And so the crowd comes, and Jesus has pity on them, for they are like sheep without a shepherd. This is kind of where we we can we we can get kind of beyond the meaning of the text and beyond the meaning of the gospel in its in its. Uh, precise meaning, and take a good look at at human nature also. Because we see in here now something of the humanity of Jesus. We struggle with this, with the incarnation. And so often um, we want to make Jesus only human and sometimes only divine. Um, Certainly in the streams of uh, theology that flowed from a focusing solely on the Pauline letters, um, Jesus' divinity emerges because he's seen basically as post-resurrection spirit. Um, but, But then also we ourselves, the Catholics, have usually 
um, been very focused on the Gospels. And our, the, the tendency here then is to know him more deeply through the Gospels, not through the projection of our own need or want, but through a confrontation with the concrete person of Jesus, which the Gospels provide for us. At the same time, then, we can run the risk of, of just kind of making him a kind of uh, an ethical image or a model or an idealized model. Um, we, we know that, that there can be radicals within the Catholic Church. Obviously, we all know that. And, and many of them choose then to kind of de-divinize Jesus, to make him just kind of a human model, a human person. And I think we've mentioned before, sometimes, you know, you see him in a kind of a, a collage of, of pictures of Martin Luther King Jr. and Nelson Mandela and Mahatma Gandhi and so forth. That's a false interpretation of who Jesus is. And, and yet that's something that we run the risk of also. But we see his humanity here, and it's a good for us to look at his humanity because he shares that humanity with us, and we share our humanity with him. The more we know about Jesus as the human, the, the more we know about him, the more self-understanding we can acquire about ourselves. The more we know about his divinity, the more we stand in awe of who he is and what he does, and the clearer becomes then the destiny of the believer. So that we need both of we need both his humanity and his divinity in order for us to have a clearer and a more complete picture of Jesus than just pieces and parts, just post resurrection spirit versus incarnation. And that's not a good dichotomy to have because both of those things go together unto the consum unto the consummation of the world. So then here we have in this in this particular gospel, a look at his at the generosity of his human nature. You know, it's it's really interesting for us because many of us encounter these kinds of situations. Not exactly like Jesus. We don't have crowds of thousands or hundreds of people following us around trying to listen to us. But uh, but but he has every reason from a human point of view, to say, you know, it's time out right now. Um, the apostles are exhausted. We've been through the emotional trauma of the execution of the Baptist. Um, and we just need some time to recoup. And then this huge crowd of people show up. And Jesus could say to them, you know, I'm sorry, but we're spent. There's nothing left to give right now. Come back at a better time. And... Uh, but that's not what he did. In the midst of the uh, midst of the sadness, in the in the midst of the of the tiredness, the exhaustion, he then begins to teach them. It says at some length. The notion of part of the Christian life being being the generosity of the human heart. I mean, this is something I think. <clears throat> We don't we don't look at closely enough. We're kind of in this age where it's you know well gee I got to take care of myself. And you know if we were if we were friends of the group in this gospel we'd say no don't even do that you know take care of yourself take some time for yourself. Um, but you know that's not what Jesus does. And I think that we ourselves we ourselves have to look very carefully and very closely 
at how we deal with these kind of situations in our own life. When, in fact, do the needs of others become for us the primary needs that we ourselves have? And that what do we do with that? Um, and, and I think that many, many times all of us will say, well, gee, I just can't do that anymore. You know, I have this planned or I have this planned or this is what I'm supposed to do. And so we kind of avoid it. And I think we all stand convicted of this kind of self-concern and self-reference. Um, but, but let us think about what it means for Jesus. This is an, and this in a way is kind of a prefiguration of the crucifixion. Because the crucifixion is the totally, total giving of Jesus himself for the love of his people. He did not die. We all know from, from the trials that we, from the investigations and the questioning and interrogation and all of that kind of thing from the, from the uh, trial of Jesus, we know that in many ways he might have been able to slip out from under this kind of difficulty if he wanted to. He had always been able to kind of slip out of these confrontations because it wasn't time not to. But this now was the time to pay the price. This was the time to sacrifice for the sake of redemption. And, uh, and so he made the choice. Um, in prayer with his father, he made the choice to demonstrate, <coughs> to demonstrate what it really means to love with everything that we have. And so the most precious thing, of course, that we have is our life. And when, in fact, we can give that life generously and willingly for the well-being of others, it is the supreme act of care, the supreme act of love for another, for others. So Jesus does this, and it is a sign of the great generosity which he has, the great generosity which he displays both in this moment but on the cross. For us, what does it mean? I think that many people certainly understand this. Certainly parents understand this in response to the needs of their children. Um, and especially, I mean, always, but especially like the newborns. Somebody's got to get up every couple hours. Somebody can't get a good night's sleep for months. Um, but even though they might not do it with a joyful heart, the love is deep enough and the care is deep enough that they do it anyway. And I think it's true of all of us. A neighbor in need, um, can we sacrifice of ourselves in such a way as to respond to their need, even when it's inconvenient for us or even very personally difficult for us? Can, in fact, even, even in the priesthood, there's a lot of demands and can we take that extra moment? Can we do that extra thing somehow or other to respond to the needs of another, even if it seems apparently to blow up our day or blow up our evening or blow up our night? Um, these are all things that we face constantly. And here we see Jesus respond to them in a total and kind of a peaceful way and actually in a very generous way. It's going to become a very generous way because he's going to feed them too. But basically, he also elicits within him a deep sense of the sadness of the needs of the people. The sadness of the needs of the people 
for someone to lead them, someone to guide them, someone to teach them. Um, certainly there will be people who resist that. And even when the teaching of the church goes on today, there are all sorts of people who say, well, no, we know better. We don't care about what the church says. For some reason, we want to keep the title Catholic, but we have no desire to be one. Um, not sure what that is, but what it is at its very core is a lack of humility and a lack of generosity of heart. And um, so people, we have to live with those kinds of things. We all have to live with our faults, our shortcomings, and our sins. We have recourse to the sacrament of penance, the sacrament of reconciliation, to try and be able to start over again. And, uh, and each time the grace of the Lord is with us, and each time hopefully we do manage to get beyond some of the worst characteristics that have been part of our lives or part of our behavior for a very long time. Um, but at the same time that this generosity, which is the mark of the Christian, this great generosity is now seen right before us at work here. Um, we know that Jesus did not hesitate to respond to that because it was an opportunity for him to bring pe people closer to him and closer to the kingdom. Um, we know the struggle, the prophets talk about the struggle of the leadership of the people, the struggle of the shepherds. Um, in the prophet Jeremiah, um, one, of the, one of the great condemnations is Jeremiah in his 23rd chapter says, Doom for the shepherds who allow the flock of my pastor to be destroyed and scattered. It is the Lord who speaks. Therefore, um, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says about the shepherds in charge of my people. They have let my flock be scattered and go wandering and have not taken care of them. So this is, this is through the ages, the idea of the negligent, uh, the negligent shepherds, the ones who are not willing to expend of themselves and give of themselves for the sake of the mission that they have been sent on. And, and so we, this is not a criticism of priests because um, certainly I am one, but it, it, it emphasizes our humanity. And we all struggle with the faults and failures, the common faults and failures of all humanity. But I think that also it might give us the opportunity to kind of create a larger image of the mission of the Lord Jesus. It might help us to see how the humanity and the divinity coincide. The divinity certainly saw the big picture, the huge picture of the destiny of humanity. And I think, actually, it, it gives us, as, we, as it does this, it gives us the opportunity to have to maybe increase our own kind of zeal, our own kind of care and concern. For it's easy to become either totally, totally negative about the potential of the human race or um, kind of foolishly optimistic about it to where we say, oh, well, if God is a good God, he won't punish anybody because after all, you know, what I, how could I help it? That was, that was my environment. That was all of those kinds of things. And so the Lord will take care of it all. And so don't worry. Um, he loves me. I can do whatever I want. If that were true, 
then why would Jesus be so concerned? Why would he take this extra step? Why would he open up the generosity of his heart at a time when it was not really in him to do so, to take care of a large crowd of people? And why did he pity them? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. If we don't need the shepherd to lead, then what difference does it make if, if they, we have a good shepherd or not? And so we, we, it, it gives us a, an opportunity to think about, to reflect upon, what about humanity? What about how we live and what we do? What about what difference does it make? What does the Lord really ask of us? What does the Lord really expect of us? Does the Lord expect perfection from us? Um, not necessarily. But does the Lord invite us to perfection? Certainly so. How does he think that we get there? How does he think that we can achieve and we can move toward that kind of perfection in our own lives? Well, he sent out the 12 two by two and, and gave them strict instructions as to how to talk to the people and what to do and how to proclaim the kingdom of God. Then here in this gospel, after there's been some serious consequences for that in the life of the Baptist, and after the apostles have already been out on their journey and are tired and so forth, then, then he still sees, he has shown this is, this is worth the effort. This is what you're supposed to do. And then I'm going to show you how it's really done to its very best, and that is of the giving of the self. And, and I think maybe each of us knows in the depths of our own hearts what this idea of authentic love is all about. We know, for instance, that to love another demands a generosity of heart. To love another means to restrict our expectations um, about who that person is or can become but simply to love them who, as who they are with a deep hope and prayer and whatever else we can do to help them to grow into more complete, more whole, and better people. That it can probably be summed up quite simply by, by saying that to love another person is that their well-being becomes more important to you than your own. And this is exactly what Jesus is demonstrating, not just another person, but other people as well. The generosity of the Christian is not just their own quest for personal salvation. The generosity of the, of the Christian <clears throat> is to do whatever they can, giving of themselves in the process to bring others more closely into contact with Jesus Christ into contact with the church, into contact with the sacraments, into contact with those things that are going to enhance them, make them more complete, more whole as human beings, and guide them and lead them toward the kingdom of God. That's what the Christian does, and that's the Christian mission. We do it as ordained priests. We do it as faithful laity. Um, we do it as vowed religious. We do it in any way that the Lord calls us to do it. But this example here in this gospel is maybe one of the greatest personal challenges that you and I can really face by becoming, becoming faithful disciples of Jesus Christ and faithful followers of his word. It is the great appeal, the great appeal for generosity of heart as the key and the heart of Christian love and Christian charity. 
Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com.